I am delighted to be joined by the Commissioner of Public Health, Manisha Jutani, to talk about a number of things, not just the pandemic. We will get to other things, though. Commissioner, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to talk to you for the first time. For starters, let me just ask you about the pandemic and where things stand right now. The numbers have been going up for the last month, month and a half or so. How concerned are you about that? Well, first, thanks for having me. And I think what we're seeing this time around is that we have a lot of virus circulating in our communities. Our hospitalizations are also going up. They are not quite at the level that they've been in the past at all. But we are starting to see that the impact of COVID patients in the hospital is at a higher level. So we're nowhere close to where we were before. Um, I don't know about you, but I feel like everywhere I turn around, somebody or another is telling me that they have COVID. And many people are having mild symptoms, which is a great reflection of vaccination, which is certainly a plus that we have. But we do need to keep an eye on this as we're going forward. Speaking of vaccinations, I was looking at some numbers yesterday, and 3 million people in the state have gotten one dose, 2.7 have gotten two doses, quote-unquote, fully vaccinated. Only 1.5 million got the first booster, and only 184,000 got the second booster. Are you disappointed in how few people in the state have gotten that second booster shot? So the first thing we have to remember with the second booster is only people 50 and older are eligible for it, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that you need to have waited four months from your first booster to get that second booster. And for many people, they waited a while to actually get that first booster. So the number of people that are eligible is certainly smaller than the numbers that we see overall in terms of vaccinated people. Having said that, are there many people who are eligible who have not gotten that second booster? Absolutely. And what are some of the hesitation that I hear from people? I've heard people say, well, you know, I've gotten so many shots, like, do I really need another one? And what I would say there is that we are going through a surge right now. And the reason the FDA approved this second shot for older people is we know that age is the number one risk factor for worse outcomes with COVID. And so if you still haven't gotten that second booster, I would say now's the time to get it. Because even if you do get COVID, but it's mild, that is much better than ending up in the hospital. So the FDA really made this decision because they were trying to blunt the potential impact of preventable deaths in what seemed like a coming surge, which is exactly what's happening right now. How much of a factor of this current surge, 13.2% seven-day positivity rate, the highest since January 25th, and Wyndham's had 112 new cases in the last two weeks, is a factor in removing all the mandates, the mass mandates, and people just tired of the pandemic and kind of letting their guard down? It's all of the above, as you said. So I think there are two factors. First of all, even within the Omicron variant, which we know was the most contagious that we had seen up until that point, and then the subvariant, this BA2, was even more infectious. You know, this is what viruses do. They want to survive, and they find ways to keep getting more and more infectious. And that is what has happened. So what we see is that we've got a more infectious variant, and a lot of the restrictions have gone away, and people are choosing not to use them in terms of which ones they have at their disposal. So the combination of the two is part of what we're seeing at this point. I just looked it up last night. The CDC still defines fully vaccinated as getting two shots, which for most people is over a year or so ago. Would you like to see them expand that to at least include one booster? 
So the definition the CDC uses for many vaccines is up-to-date. Now, what does that mean? Fully vaccinated is, as you said, those two shots. What we're anticipating is that we're going to probably need a yearly shot when it comes to COVID. And so as opposed to constantly changing the definition of fully vaccinated, what the CDC is signaling is that are you up-to-date in your vaccine series? So people have to experience this, for example, with, let's say, a tetanus shot. Uh, You know, you need to get one every 10 years unless you stub your foot on a nail or something like that. And so in a similar way for COVID, anticipating that we're probably going to need more and more boosters, I hope it'll be only on a yearly basis because I think that's something that most people will buy onto. You know, if they have to get one every six months or four months, I think that's hard for people. I understand that. It, It feels like, why do I have to keep getting shots? So I think if we are able to get to a place where we have an effective enough vaccine that is once a year and the definition of up-to-date is getting that shot, fully vaccinated will remain as those two shots like we have for many other vaccines, but then we'll be able to remain up-to-date in our series going forward. I got my second booster last week, and except for a very minor sore arm, this is Pfizer, I had basically no reaction whatsoever. I wonder, though, that some of the people I've heard of, especially Moderna people, have had a bigger reaction. Do you think some of the reason why a lot of people haven't gotten boosted, especially number two, is because they don't want to go through those symptoms, those reactions again? Absolutely. I fully understand that. And, you know, what I have suggested to people is that if you got more severe of a reaction to Moderna and you want to try out Pfizer this time around, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, And as you said, most of the people that I've heard that got the second booster, particularly with Pfizer, uh, had very mild reactions. So the, the main thing is to get a booster. And even if you had Moderna as your first series, you can certainly go out and get Pfizer for that second booster. If you're in that older age group, that's what I'd recommend. If you're worried about side effects, go out and get the Pfizer one because I think the chances are better that you'll have less side effects. And that's what the trials showed us. The trials showed us that the incidence of side effects was about 30% for Moderna and 20% for Pfizer. So that's what I recommend to people. How soon after COVID exposure or infection can you get boosted? So what we're recommending to people is that you wait the 90 days um, after you've had an infection. So, you know, I I think in the beginning there have been various different uh, sort of uh, streams of thought out there. Should you wait 30 days? Can you wait 90 days? And I think overall, you know, you sort of get a pass for 90 days that your immunity after you've had COVID lasts. So what I would say is if you wait that time period, then I would get that booster at the end of the 90 days because now that will extend you out even further. Does taking antivirals decrease the amount of antibodies the patient produces? We don't have evidence to suggest that that would be the case. They would be very different mechanisms of action overall in terms of, you know, what is your body doing in terms of building immune cells versus how is the medication attacking the virus? They're different sort of streams of biology that happen. What we do see in the trial that was done by Pfizer uh, regarding particularly Paxlovid is that in a very small subset, there are some patients who took Paxlovid and then had a rebound in symptoms. We don't totally understand why that is. So when they finished their five-day course, there's a small subset that ended up having some symptoms return that then also still go away. 
So, again, I don't think that has to do with immunity per se. I think we're still trying to understand that. Nevertheless, again, the Paxlovid is not available to everybody. For those who are 65 and older, those with comorbidities, that's the group that Paxlovid is going to be available for. And, again, to try to stay out of the hospital, it is absolutely worth it to take it. That would be my advice and suggestion. We've got lots of test-to-treat sites, lots of pharmacies that have the medications available, and I encourage people to go out and get it. And Paxlovid is only to be used by people who have tested positive? Yes, absolutely. So we are not using it in any way as what we would call pre-exposure prophylaxis. So I think what you're getting at with your question is, if you have somebody else in the household, let's say, who's tested positive for COVID, and you haven't, can you take it? And right now there's no such indication to do that. Is that something that might change with time for particularly vulnerable people? That's possible, but I don't think that we have any evidence to suggest that should be done at this point. For immunocompromised and vulnerable people, what I would say is that you should get Evusheld, which is that pre-exposure prophylaxis. It lasts for many months and can protect you from worse outcomes of COVID. I'm curious how you base your data now because of the change you've had in metrics since home tests were available. Numbers like the ones that came out yesterday saying that we've had 25 new deaths in the last week, that's hard evidence. Hospitalizations down yesterday by 9 to 291, that's hard evidence. But as far as the other numbers, like number of cases are concerned, with home tests, I don't think you're getting the same data that you got maybe six or eight months ago. So how significant is it that people are testing at home and you are not getting that data anymore that you used to get when people got tested at public sites. So we are in a very different phase of this pandemic now. Because we have treatments both inpatient and outpatient and vaccines, and you're absolutely right, we do not have an accurate count of all the number of cases. But because of that, where we have shifted is exactly the metrics that you talked about. How many deaths are we having how many hospitalizations are we having? That's what really is our burden on the healthcare system. This is the type of number that we look at every you know, winter season for flu. Unfortunately, with COVID, we are not at a point yet where this is just a seasonal virus. I was really hoping two years into this we would be there, but it might take another three years or so, or this virus will teach us that it really wants to be around all year round or you know, just at lower levels. But what I think we're finding is that really hospitalizations, deaths, those are the numbers that we're going to be looking at in terms of burden on our healthcare system. And right now we're still reporting the number of cases because in terms of the ones that we capture by PCR, but you are absolutely right. We are not capturing all the minor colds that people are testing at home with self-test kits. You know, the state sent out over 7 million tests, and now there's insurance companies that are covering self-test kits So we have so much testing available at home, and we absolutely are not capturing those numbers. But those aren't the most important numbers. I mean, they might be shocking numbers. They might be eye-popping numbers if we got all of them. But they wouldn't really be telling us what we need to know, which is those numbers regarding hospitalizations, which ultimately is going to be the thing that gives us an indicator of burden on our health care system. Well, I did some math yesterday that a year ago you were getting three times as many tests reported that you are getting right now. And that's, of course, largely because of the home test. So what are you getting? Are you getting it from doctors and urgent care? You're not getting it from people that self-test. That's correct. So we continue to get uh, PCR tests, um, antigen tests that are done in urgent cares, as you said. So it's exactly those sites where somebody comes in and may test with a test that's provided by the site 
or by those PCR sites that we have up in many areas in our community. And so for, you know, many other reportable diseases that we have, infectious diseases in our state, generally the way they are reported are through those tests that are done in a doctor's office, in a hospital, by a lab. Those are the ones that are considered reportable and that must be reported to us as the state. And so largely those are the ones that we're getting at this point. Dr. Jatani, Dr. Fauci said last night that a quarter of the million who have died from COVID would still be alive today if they had been vaccinated. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a sobering number, and it's, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. It's sad. I think we have a metric. We have a tool. We have a tool with us now that can really save people, and I'm grateful for all the number of people who have been saved by vaccinations. Unfortunately, we do know that there are some people who, despite vaccination, have passed. But that's with our best efforts that, you know, we at least tried. What I would say is I know that most people have made their decision on vaccination at this point. If they were going to get vaccinated, they have. And if they've chosen that this is not for them, they've largely made that choice. But I would just appeal to people that, Keep an open mind. Think of that number. It's a sobering number. And at this point, if we have tools to be able to help us be able to get through this pandemic and, for that matter, all infections that are vaccine-preventable, I am a proponent of all of them because I think at the end of the day, that's how we maintain a safe society. That's how we maintain kids in school. And I would appeal to parents who have not gotten their children vaccinated yet, that going into the school year this coming fall, based on what we're seeing right now, I would anticipate that with areas that have low vaccination rates for children, we saw there was one school that had to close down even because of COVID outbreaks, because of staffing shortages. We want to keep our kids in school. So doing what we can to get kids vaccinated and as protected as possible, that's still something that we're going to be working on as we approach the new school year. Yeah, that school was in Enfield. Just got a listener question. It says, I find it hard to understand why getting more than one shot a year is an inconvenience. I think saving someone's life or avoiding hospitalization might be worth a few minutes of time. Also, she says, when I had the flu three years ago, my husband was given a Tamiflu injection. Why could COVID be different? So those are great points. I'm completely with your listener. I absolutely would recommend getting the vaccines. I'm just trying to sit in the shoes of people who I get questions from about, you know, why do I have to go get another vaccine? But these are the comments that I hear from people. So I'm completely with your listener. I totally agree that just getting another shot is not a big deal. Now, in terms of the Tamiflu, you know, we've had more years of experience with influenza so far. And Tamiflu is used as pre-exposure prophylaxis, exactly as she outlined, for people who are vulnerable who maybe would be able to get it because they would be particularly at high risk. And we just don't have that information yet for Paxlovid. First of all, Paxlovid is only oral. And whether it will be recommended in that way going forward, it's very possible. We just don't have that recommendation yet. So it doesn't mean that it won't be down the road. Let me wrap things up with a couple of non-pandemic issues. And just a week ago, a resident of Wyndham got the Powassan virus infection, apparently from a tick fight. Tell me about your concern about that. Is this getting a bigger threat now in Connecticut? And apparently there's no vaccine to help prevent that? 
Yes, that's absolutely right. So, you know, as an infectious disease specialist, and when I was at Yale, I have taken care of patients with Powassan virus. This is not new. We have had Powassan virus cases over the last several years. It's pretty rare. Um, it is a tick-borne virus. We don't do surveillance per se for this virus. So what that means is we don't take ticks and test all of them for Powassan. We usually test for things like Lyme, Babesia, and Anaplasma, which are the three most common infections that people get from ticks in the state of Connecticut. And so our agricultural station does testing for those three. Powassan is less common, but how prevalent it is in our ticks, we don't really know the answer to that. What I can say is that the number of patients that actually come to clinical attention is usually pretty rare. There's usually, you know, a handful of cases, and not every year. Sometimes it might be one year, then we may have a year with not much, and then another year we may have a couple. So I think what people need to remember about this virus, there, there is no vaccine. There is nothing else that we can do per se other than prevention. And most people in Connecticut are quite familiar with prevention strategies related to ticks because this is a problem that we do have, and particularly with our warming climate, there are more months of the year where potentially it's a problem where the ticks don't freeze over. And what we know is that, you know, wearing longer pants, brushing off, brushing off your dogs, uh, brushing off your kids, doing tick checks, these are all things people can do after they've spent time outdoors to try to protect themselves from these types of pathogens that are in ticks. And lastly, Dr. Jutani, there's an unexplained hepatitis outbreak in children, 348 probable cases worldwide, over 100 of unknown origin currently in the U.S. What are your thoughts on that, and how serious a concern is that in Connecticut? So this is a very interesting situation that is developing, and what we have identified so far is that these cases all seem to be linked, or at least those have been identified, to adenovirus 41. So for most people, what is adenovirus? Adenovirus could cause a respiratory infection, you know, it could mimic COVID or flu or anything else like that. Uh, it, adenovirus can cause conjunctivitis. So it could cause very mild infections. But for whatever reason, which is not completely clear yet, for younger children, it is going on and causing this hepatitis. Now, it is one pathogen that can cause hepatitis, but usually not so fulminant where there are young children that have required liver transplants. And that is something significant. This is why the CDC is alerting people. So, you know, it's ironic, but there's not much you can do to prevent infection with adenovirus. Masking is one thing that you can do. As we know, for all respiratory viruses, uh, you know, masking is preventative. Uh, but, you know, most of the time for this type of virus, people aren't doing that, and you just are dealing with the ramifications of what is to come. So I don't think that this is something people need to be panicked about. But what I would say for parents of young children is that if your child starts looking yellow, if they're having belly pain, if they have other respiratory symptoms, get them evaluated because it could be that there's something a little bit more serious going on given that we know that there are all these cases that have been identified so far. Dr. Jutani, it was great to catch up with you. Thanks for the solid information this morning. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. That's the Connecticut Department of Public Health Commissioner, Dr. Manisha Jutani, on 14 WILI Willimantic at 95.3 FM.